I'm Crystal Sorakas. Welcome to Off the Page, the show featuring good books and good conversations with authors from our own region and from around the world. My guest today is poet Jillian Barnett. She lives with her husband and a growing array of opinionated animals on a tiny farm in Interlaken, New York. Her work has appeared in North American Review, Imagine, and the Bellingham Review, which earned her a nomination for a pushcart prize for her poem, Egg. Her new collection is Falling Bodies, which will be released in August. Jillian, thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I would love to hear about your process. What is an ideal day for you? Uh, there, there really is no ideal day. I do go to my desk probably six days out of the week and hope that something usable comes out. <laughs> uh, I always write, but my, my best poetry in particular, and sometimes essays too, tend to be the ones that come out whole, just boom. But of course, you never know when that's going to happen. So you have to keep going to the desk. And of course, there are those ones that you noodle with for years that finally turn into something when you get some spark of, oh, that's what's missing. But I just try to show up almost every day and hope for the best and not put too much pressure on myself. Now, you have just moved to the Finger Lakes region a couple of years ago, and you have a small farm. What's yes. that like? It is so di different from where we came from. We lived in a townhouse in the city of Pittsburgh uh, where everything was done for us. I could hear the fellas clearing the snow from my driveway before I ever opened my eyes in the morning. And now we have four acres it's a 200-year-old farmhouse, which, of course, needs everything all the time, and a barn that's even older than that. We've acquired um, a couple more indoor animals and some chickens, and there's always something to do. Are you finding yourself in that environment maybe writing different kinds of poems than when you lived in Pittsburgh? You know, I haven't been writing poetry as much as essays. For some reason, once this, this collection was, was going to press, I sort of shifted my focus and am writing more essays, publishing more essays in uh, literary journals. But um, I would say my subject really hasn't changed that much. Um, I tend to sort of circle around family and loss and adoption and children, that sort of thing. And, and that has not changed. And I, I've always sort of had an interest in capturing the natural world before we moved here. So that hasn't changed either, really. Those <laughs> themes that you talked about are very much present in Falling Bodies, and that's the name of your, of your chapbook. When you were putting this collection together, did you have a particular set of poems that you'd written already in mind? Did you write specifically for this collection? Talk about how this came together. This came together over a long period of time. Some of these poems are almost 20 years old. I started trying to put together a collection 
oh, many years ago. And the collection never felt quite right, never held together. Um, and I would send it out sort of knowing that I was going to get it right back. But I couldn't figure out what was wrong. And then just the way my process works, one day I sat down with all the poems in front of me that I, that I was really interested in getting out into the world. They were all laid out on the table. And all of a sudden, the structure for this book presented itself as if it had been there all along and I had just been ignoring it. Is that frustrating to you at times? <laughs> so frustrating because I know I know usually that the answer is within me but I can't make it appear and um I I even try, try to use my dreams I try to prime my dreams at night to give me the answer and that rarely works I mean anytime you force anything it just doesn't work a friend of mine used to say when you can't think of something that you're trying to think of Think of something odd, like ask yourself, when's the last time I saw three white horses? And then you have to think of something completely different. And actually, I think that the best poems happen in a very similar way. They're about two completely disparate things rubbing up against each other. So you're thinking about one thing, like adoption, for instance, and you go somewhere or see something and you see a giraffe or you hear about a giraffe or read about a giraffe and the giraffe marries with the adoption and becomes the first poem in this collection and the giraffe and the adoption do the work aristotle said uh, metaphor should create a stunning bridge between items that are not like one another so that you see each of them in a new way. And that's what happens. Will you read that poem for us now? Sure will. This poem first appeared in North American Review, Giraffa Camelopardalis. The first time my husband kissed me, he didn't bend. He spread his legs the way a giraffe does when it eats from acacia trees that are shorter than it is. That's what the kiss felt like, a taking in, getting of nourishment. At birth, baby giraffes fall a long way from their mothers, a cruel entrance into the world. I feel that way sometimes, taken, far from my mother, to live with strangers who were not of me. This was not what I was expecting. I expected her arms right away and always. There are studies. A baby can recognize a photo of her mother even if she has never seen her. A baby giraffe follows its mother within two hours of its birth. My husband is indulgent when I sniff him when he comes home from work. He says he finds it odd that I greet him the way animals do. I can tell what kind of day he's had, sharp and peppery for stressed. 
Mild and musky, he laughed a lot and was among friends. My husband believes it's because I never got to smell my real family, never liked the scent of my adopted mother, who doesn't smell right to me. Some people think giraffes don't have voice sounds, but the fact is they moan. They clean their young with long black tongues as if they could eat them, as if they love them that much. Oh, wow. There is, there is so much longing in that poem. I, I take it you're adopted? I am, yes. It, uh, is... it took me the better part of two decades to find my birth family. Can you talk about that experience? Well, that's actually what I'm writing a memoir about right now. When you're, you're an adoptee who is part of a closed adoption, all of your records are sealed. And it's illegal for you to obtain them. And so, frankly, I, I broke a lot of laws. <laughs> and I was my father's daughter. Found out that my father was a spy. And I became a very good spy myself in order to unearth the information that I needed to find them. That actually brings me into another piece that I'd love for you to read, and then we can talk about. Would you read Ancestry for us? I sure will. How, would you describe this as a poem or more a prose poem? How would you describe it? I wrote it as prose. I think, you know, it would be easy to think of it as a poem, though. I hate labels, so... <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I try not to label it. I try not to label anything because I, I find it so restrictive. So I just write what comes out. Okay. <laughs> this is Ancestry. I first saw my father in a black and white photo. He was maybe in his late 20s, on horseback, tall, a rigid spine. I couldn't make out his face, blurred and in partial shadow, like looking through a centuries-old window. I kept trying and trying to see him and failing. I first understood my father through my mother's words, flew for the Air Force, spied in Korea and Vietnam, didn't want children, tried to smother my sister Kate with a pillow, tried to convince the doctor to abort me, was served with divorce papers in Vietnam because mom feared he'd kill her. I saw him in my mind's eye when mom told me the story about flying to Boston, pregnant with me. Before they'd left the house that morning, she'd squeezed her swollen feet into dressy heels. Then she'd taken the shoes off during the flight and couldn't get them back on. The movie in my head showed my father, tall, stern, unfeeling, grabbing her wrist, pulling her barefooted down the metal stairs from the plane, growling his refusal to buy her new shoes. Decades later, I found my father's name in a divorce document on Ancestry.com, where I discovered the lies in my mother's story. Amazing how easy it is to look that stuff up 
He was the one who filed for divorce in Virginia, cause, adultery, wife. The divorce uncontested, no alimony granted. He was 33, she was 27. They'd been married 10 years. My favorite part, number of minor children affected, one. I was cleanly deleted from his life. That same day, I finally saw my father's face clearly in his high school yearbook photo, another Ancestry.com search. Clayton Oliver Stashinsky, stash, trumpet player with a remarkable sense of humor, yearbook editor, drama, travel, and chess clubs. He has my daughter's face, mine too, our cowlicky curls, round-tipped Polish noses, heart-shaped jaws. He was wrong. I'm his. Just look at us. Look at him, his direct gaze unsettling in a young man. I began to know my father in the lies told about him, in the lies he believed and the lies I believed in not knowing what's true anymore, the place all spies get to eventually. The day after I found his divorce documents and high school photo, I resolved to go to his door, his address just a three hour drive away. Having been afraid of him for so many years, I wanted finally to lay eyes on him, know the truth of him. I wanted him to lay eyes on me have him open the door and see his own face. He'd know me. He'd see me. He'd see that I know what he did. He'd see that I don't know anything. The next day, amid preparing to go to him, I discovered an ancestry photo of my father's tombstone. Indian Town Gap National Cemetery, section MW-1, row B, Site six, he died last year. Here's what I know, Major, United States Air Force, born May 15th, 1931, died March 12th, 2019. That, that's just an incredible piece of writing. Thank you. That's one of the ones that came out completed just sat down, wrote it, it was done. Wow. Is that from your life or just something that came to you? No, that's, that is completely autobiographical. That's exactly as it happened. I don't have a good enough imagination. I, <laughs> I often think that it's really lucky for me as a writer that I've had a very interesting life because I don't have the imagination to create a life as interesting as mine. So what was that like for you finding this person? You're getting ready to go see them then to find the picture of the tombstone. It was devastating and yet somehow expected. I don't think I ever believed that I would be able to get to him in a satisfying way. And in fact, I'm still the spy um, trying to get at my father's 
information, trying to get the military to release information to me. I am his next of kin, but I can't prove it. There's no paperwork that links Judith Ann Stashinsky, the baby that I was born, my father's child, to Jillian Barnett, the person that I am. There's, there's no paperwork to show that. Um, and in this country, in this society, if you don't have paper, you don't exist. I actually had someone tell me I didn't exist one time. I called, I called a records office in Boston where I was born. This was very early on in my search. And they told me, Judith Ann Stashinsky does not exist. And I said, excuse me, but I'm sitting right here. I do. I do exist. And I think, you know, carrying that sort of suspicion of self-non-existence is what has propelled me to be a writer, to be heard. Suspicion of non-existence, I think, <laughs> can sum up a lot of feelings that adoptees have in general, especially those who have dealt with, like you, like you mentioned, the closed, the closed birth, you know, adoption records. You have children. Do you talk to them about yes. these feelings around your own adoption? I do. Uh, their experience of my adoptive parents is much more positive than mine ever was. And I don't want to take that away from them. So I share what's relevant to their lives and and try not to sort of underscore my longing for my birth family throughout my life. Now, when they read my memoir, <laughs> I think they're, they're going to find out a little bit more. But isn't that the problem of all memoir writing? Yeah, yeah. Will you read another poem for us? Sure. I will read Egg, uh, which is about one of my daughters. Perfect. Um, this first appeared in Bellingham Review, and, and Bellingham Review uh, nominated it for a pushcart prize. Egg. My daughter pleads tenderly to her egg, but I think I see it turning its small head aside on its pillow of cardboard and cotton. Sixth grade homework. Carry a hollow egg for a week. Lose points and confidence for cracking. At feeding time, she gently strokes its wounds. I want to tell her motherhood's a lie, pure randomness, a pinprick to some essential part, something eking away even as the cells multiply. Last week, I walked Rialto Beach in fog Miles of upended trees, roots like teeming nests of baby mussels, and the starfish bruised red, shy to my touch, curled in upon themselves, and bleached stones smooth as eggs I took guiltily in my pockets as the rain began, thinking if I brought them home, I might be changed. The first months after I brought her home, 
I watched by her window the slow sprouting of a holly bush. Light caught in the rachis of each thorny leaf kept me there, while in my head voices asked, why not just leave? But for the seed dropped by some bird, breaking eventually even the stone wall and my insistence on who together we would be. Later, I will drive her to a new dance class to pirouette in an unfamiliar part of town. And I'll leave time to ask directions over and over of strangers whose waving arms will show me the way. She curls over the egg like the design of the mussel's shell for attachment. Her fingers tug, impatient, tufting the cotton nest. If you are to do this, I want to tell her, you must get on your knees. Wow. That line that motherhood's a lie. Talk to mm -hmm. us about that line. When I had my twins, I was in a very unhealthy, unhappy marriage and um, found myself in way over my head. My husband was never there. And the ideals of motherhood that you think of and that I thought of you know, I knew I didn't have the best mother who raised me. I was raised mostly sort of by nannies. Um, and I thought, oh, I'm going to be such a wonderful mother to my children. And I was just desperate to get pregnant, which is how I ended up with twins from fertility drugs. Um, but that, that mythology of motherhood is such a bunch of bunk. I, I brought I brought home these babies. I had no idea what I was doing. I had very little support. Um, and I I sort of wanted so badly to warn both my daughters um, that motherhood is not the myth you see. it's it's so much harder. i've I've had, a bazillion jobs over my life, um, many of which were extremely difficult, but you could put all that difficulty together and you wouldn't get the kind of difficulty of raising children because the stakes are so high. You know, you love them beyond anything you could have imagined and you raise the stakes like that. And of course you're going to fail. <laughs> mm -hmm. We are almost out of time. Do you have time to read one more for us? I do. Um, is there one that, in particular that you'd like to hear? No, I think this is your choice. Okay. Hands intercede on my father's behalf. It was first published in Blue Violin. Hands intercede on my father's behalf. I saw my mother touch my father once in the hospital, in intensive care, where he lay after they repaired his heart. My father didn't look like my father. His face 
spongy, gray, and unshaven, his hair thin strands across the pillow, hands, the soft, puffy hands of a baby. And when I saw her reach for one, it occurred to me it was because she was mistaken, because she thought for a moment his hand belonged to someone else. She patted it stiffly, there, there, an expected protocol. It was expected, but not by me. In my mother's awkward gesture, suddenly I recognized my father, his rage and disappointment, the dangerous animal blackness of his eyes that struck me silent, made me hate him. I understood him finally with my body, and I cried to think that hearts like ours could be saved. Jillian, thank you so much for talking with me today, and thank you so much for sharing your poems. Thank you so much, Crystal. It was such a pleasure. I really appreciate being here. Jillian Barnett's new collection, Falling Bodies, will be released in August. You can pre-order the collection on our website at JillianBarnettWrites.com. Some listeners have asked me to mention what other books I'm enjoying these days. Well, I recently reread David McCullough's Truman, which is the masterful biography of Harry S. Truman and highly recommended. And I'm in the middle of Emily St. John Mandel's Sea of Tranquility. I have no idea what's going on yet, but I am very much enjoying it. Also, former President Barack Obama just released his summer reading list, and there are several books from there that I'm adding to my own TBR pile. I'd love to hear about what you're reading. Tweet me with your summer favorites. I'm at CSaracus on Twitter, or you can tweet at WSKG. We've got a lot of wonderful authors coming up over the next couple of months on the program. Bonnie Garmus, Carrie Blankinger, Yuvi Zalko, Kevin Lucia, and more. You can make sure you don't miss a single episode by following our podcast on your favorite podcast app. Off the Page is a production of WSKG Public Media. I'm your host and producer, Crystal Sorakis. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time we go Off the Page. <laughs>